Welcome to your best, your dog's best life. This is Leanne, and today we have a special guest with Maggie. Um, but first, I do have to do a disclaimer. I am outside. I have a puppy in training, and she's been in a crate for a while, so I didn't think it was fair just to put her in the house. So we're all outside, which means in the background you're going to hear possibly puppy wrestling, which is what's going on currently behind me is there's a little bit of tug of war. So it's not dog fights. It's puppy wrestling. So Maggie, welcome. Oh, it's been so long since you've been on. We've all missed you. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. At 845 so at night. I know. I, we're both <laughs> off and we still made time for this at nine o'clock at night. I know. We're I think it's funny. <laughs> I guess you're not off. I'm off this week. Yeah, I'm you not had off. A busy I have day. a puppy here. Yeah, a, a puppy here and I had a drop-in class and uh, all sorts of stuff. So anyway, but but we're here. So this is what matters. And hopefully the puppy puppy wrestling in the background won't be too distracting for our listener. And uh, so you're, you're the one who called me with the topic. And it's a brilliant topic. Actually, my last drop-in class prior to this one, we spent a lot of time talking about this. So it is a really important topic. And I I don't think it's explained enough in kind of layman's terms for regular pet owners. I mean, I think a lot, it's something that we dog people really geek out on uh, to an extreme uh, an extent and obsess with and take videos of and watch ourselves in the mirrors about. But I think that bringing it down to real pet parents and how it can improve their training and help their dogs understand what it is that they're asking from them and, and creating clarity, I think can't be over, overstressed. So Maggie, I'll let you introduce tonight's topic. Okay. So we're going to talk about mechanics. And I think in the spirit of this podcast, we should start by uh, defining what mechanics are. We say dog training mechanics. And I would say that they are everything to do with luring, shaping, uh, catching, uh, free shaping behavior and, and, and everything in between, you know, how you hold the leash, uh, your treat delivery, where you deliver those treats, um, you know, where your hand, I mean, everything to do with your technique and training your dog. And you're right. It's something that we don't talk about at least, you know, to the extent that we are going to probably today. Yeah. It's I, well, I think partly because it's such a, you know, we just talked about what broad subject it is and, and saying it's everything. <laughs> I know. <laughs> kind of becomes a bit disastrous. So I think what we'll do is we'll kind of just come up with a, a very basic example to kind of get us started off so people can kind of bring it home. Because we, like I said, this is something we can geek out about. Uh, if you ever want to watch somebody with just incredible mechanics, watch any video put out by Hannah Brannigan. It's, they're stunning. It's, it's beautiful mechanics. The best way to explain mechanics, this is how I explain it to my, my clients, is if we... So I want everybody to imagine, we're going to do very basic behaviors here. So we're going to imagine that you you're train, you have your dog and you your dog knows how to sit, okay? So you're at the point now where you can cue the sit so you're no longer luring it. You no longer have a treat like physically in your hand and you can use a verbal command or cue and say sit and your dog sits. And then you mark. So you say yes or click or whatever the hell, or whistle. And then you give the, the treat. Where people fall apart, where this picture falls apart. This all seems very simple. This seems incredibly simple. And yet this is often fraught with, with all sorts of ugliness. And the ugliness is what happens after that treat is delivered that tells your dog what to do next. 
And so what happens a lot of times when we're doing this, and again, I just kind of want you guys to imagine you're doing this. You ask your dog to sit, you give the treat. Does your dog wander off? Does your dog look around? Does your dog lie down? Does your dog stand up? Does your dog snap the treat out of your hand? Does the dog know where and how the treat is being delivered? All of those are where mechanics really become important. If we want to keep the dog, sorry, in the game, apparently somebody has a toy that somebody else wants and no one's playing with her. Uh, sorry. So anyway, if you want to keep your dog in the game, mechanics are where that happens. I'm going to mute myself and do whatever with this puppy. Okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's so much more than, I mean, like you said, with just a simple thing like sit, I mean, think about it. You're prompting it. You may be luring it. You're probably doing both. Um, and, and, and these, the subtle way that we prompt or lure behavior is ultimately shaped our end sit. And the way that we've delivered the food, the way that we prompt, the way that we fade the prompt will get us whatever ultimately our end behavior is. I mean, we are able to, through our mechanics, shape something really pretty. Or I think sometimes, you know, I think we, we've heard, I, you know, I know you said it and I've said it too, but I don't think I've really explained what that means sometimes when we say, oh, we're being a lazy trainer or sloppy trainer. You know, typically what we mean when we say that are our mechanics. We're allowing our mechanics to slip, either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, but but usually, at least, I, and I can't speak necessarily for you, but usually when I say something like that, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about my mechanics. Oh, no, I'm just flat lazy. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the criminal dog, Ruby, stole the toy. Uh, and refuses. The other two play tag with the toy, but Ruby just takes the toy and defends it. So that was causing pandemonium. So Ruby has been removed from the play group <laughs> so that so that I don't have to listen to Matilda bark angrily at her for not for taking her ball and bat and going home, <laughs> as it were. So, so yes, like for me, the big thing about mechanics is when you're, it's the holes where I see it really playing in a couple places. The first is actual treat delivery. So for folks just starting off with, mm -hmm. with training for, for just the first, you know, you starting off and somebody says, here are treats, give them to your dog when they sit. And, and we trainers, we're, we can't spend the kind of time in a class that we would need to, to explain exactly how to do that. We say, here's a treat, here's your hand, figure it out, do the math. And, and we have to do that because if we didn't, your eyes would glaze over and everybody doze off. So that's why we have this podcast is to have you do this while you're driving because it's so much safer. So where and how you deliver that treat will affect your dog. And one of the issues that a lot of dog owners face, and not so much with sit, but here, perfect example, down. So, you know, sit's the first behavior we always train, right? What's the second behavior we always train? Down. But if your treat delivery is too high, you're going to always have a down where the dog immediately pops up. Your poor mechanics, your inability to, to understand that where you're delivering your treat and delivering your treat reward in a timely and expected manner to the dog's mouth in the position of down every single time is going to actually cause you to create a down where the dog goes down, you reward, you click, you do whatever, you create that marker, the marker lets your dog pop right back up because the treat is in the wrong place. That's that's kind of one of the things that I I see is a it's, it's when you see holes. It's when you see the dog who pays attention but then don't kind of 
fades away. You yeah. ask for a behavior, the dog does the behavior, you mark, and now the dog is floating in la-la land because they don't know what's next. And so they take that opportunity to sniff, check out. And so then you have people who are constantly trying to re-engage their dog instead of saying, well, you know what, if I ask the dog to sit, I give the treat, I immediately take another treat, walk them into a stand, then ask for a sit again, rinse and repeat. Then you're always knowing what you're doing. You're creating what Hannah always refers to, Hannah Burnigan always refers to as clean loops. And I, I'm not that good at it, but I'm getting better. But it is one of those things where if you are, if there are holes, that's where you're always spending your time drawing the dog back in mm -hmm. because you asked a question, they gave an answer, you gave the reward, but then they don't know what's next. So they check out. Yeah, you, you didn't you didn't build a reset into your to, to be able to 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 formulate a nice loop and treat delivery is important. I mean, think about, think about what you're building into your behavior chain when you're, you're treating your dog, when they stand up from the down, you may be marking it and you may have great timing and that may be saving what what's left of your down, but where you feed is important and how you, and, and how you reset, how you move to one behavior to the next is very important. And and even beyond that, you know, even, even where you have your food in your hand, you know, and it's funny that you say, so what really brought on this topic is I have, and I think I've told you this, I've got two of my employees who are taking their KPA course. What is KPA? Karen Pryor Academy. So, so it is a dog training school that really doesn't use a lot of lure. So they're really big on mechanics because they primarily free shape behavior. So meaning they're, you know, oh yeah, yeah. There's, I, I don't think they teach luring at all in the curriculum. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, it was interesting because one of my um, colleagues was watching me train down and, and I'm a heavy lure and we can talk more about some of the mechanics that, uh, we'd like to improve on, but I'm a heavy lure. And so what I'll do when I'll train down is I'll start by adding in my hand signal right away and I'll lure. I'll typically lure from a sit. Um, I'll eventually build in different positions, but I'll start in a sit and I'll lure and I will typically lure. I will, I will bring my prompt up my hand signal. So I'll bring my hand signal up to about leg level, but I'll still have that treat in my hand. Right. And if you are KPA and you're at school, that is, you know, a big red flag for poor mechanics, right? Because we're luring there with that food. We're, and it's going to be harder to fade, uh, hypothetically, it's going to be harder to fade that lure and that prompt later on. And so they, my, my colleague asked me, why are you luring all the way up to your, you know, you got food in your hand. And it kind of took me back for a second. Um, and I thought about it a little bit more and I, I said, oh, I don't know, I guess I probably should. I, I usually like to fade the prompt or I like to fade the food really quickly. And I was thinking about what I'm doing and I like a quick down, Leanne. I like a dog to just fly down. And I was thinking about it and the way that I work shelter dogs and I'll, I'll, I'll give them the hand signal and my, my hand is serving like a little Kong or something. You know, I'm like letting them look, look at it and I'm building all this great engagement and I'm getting these quick downs and I'm making it super fun. And I found that I'm really, really skilled at, at fading a prompt and a lure really, really quickly. So I'll get them at that knee level. I'll get that quick down. And I like it. I, li I like these big flashy behaviors, right? And that's what I'm getting when I'm doing this, I realize. 
I'm getting low latency by my through my mechanics. That's my ultimate goal. I want low latency so I can get that quick down. Um, and then I fade the prompt. But that may be considered poor mechanics because of my use of luring. So I thought that was just kind of interesting. And in, in the different schools of thought about, about luring and about mechanics and about something that she noticed that is wrong, but ultimately okay. it gets me low latency and a quick. So, cause it, so let's go back a little bit since half the people don't know what the hell luring is. So luring, so when you're talking about luring the down, uh, you have food in your hand and generally we start at the sit position and we take the food and we lure, we have it in our physical hand and the lure means the dog's nose follows the food. So if anybody has seen, you take the kind of nose to toes is the rule. You take that treat and you move it from the nose down to the toes. The dog follows the food. They end up in a down. So when Maggie's talking about luring, that's that's the that's what we're doing. We are taking food. The dog follows the food, and by accident, their body ends up in the correct location. Uh, the but that is called but that's a lure, and you don't want to spend the rest of your life on the floor with your dog having to have food in your hand to bring them down to the ground. So when Maggie's talking about fading the lure, um, that's dog trainer speak for getting rid of that treat, moving that that luring behavior, that luring movement. So if you can imagine what the movement looks like, it's, it's you know, hands flat towards the, the ground, moving down from the nose to the toes, you move that, that hand signal up and up and up, and that becomes your hand signal for down. And that's fading the lure. That's taking the, the food out of your hand. That's moving so you don't have to crawl on the floor for the rest of your life. So it, it's a complicated sounding procedure, but anybody who's trained a dog doing anything with treats has, has actually done this unless they're still crawling on the floor. So my question for you, Maggie, this is my question. So her, so I don't understand. So it can't be poor mechanics. It's just, she doesn't, they don't think that's the good training choice. I mean, your mechanics are fine. It's, that they don't train that way so they don't like the choice you made. Your mechanics are beautiful, right? I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to understand. I mean, do they just think that the act of luring is a poor mechanical choice because if so I'm going to I'm just going to say that's bullshit and move on. Well, I I think there are advantages to Yeah, but to choose but to choose to lure is not poor mechanics. To choose to lure is a choice. It's not a it's not a I, I wouldn't say that it's a poor yes. choice. I would say it's a choice. And then I, I think that there is a time and a place that we as trainers may choose that tech. So for, for pet owners, as an example, I would never inflict free shaping onto a beginner pet owner. That'd be cruel. <laughs> and that's something that we talk about very often is sometimes the proper mechanics you know, and I, I do think there are advantages to free shaping it, but I do think that sometimes the proper mechanics or, you know, because I mean, we could take a little bit longer and we could build the behavior a little differently. Um, but I don't think it's practical. And I think you still can have beautiful mechanics. Well, absolutely. absolutely. Yes. Worrying. I mean, but I wanted your take on this. I, I guess I shouldn't have uh, expected a debate from you on luring since I know you're, you're a heavy lure too. It's true. I love free shaping. <laughs> I love it as a game. I do teach most, almost all my behavior cases because they're anxiety cases. I teach all of the owners, like pretty much on day one, 
to do free shaping on an object. So it's not to the end behavior. It's just, you know, kind of essentially 101 things to do with a box. And I'm like, just put a blender in the middle of your floor and free shape your dog's attention to it. And it's not about what the picture looks like. It's about, you're just going to play. And I'm like, it doesn't matter what it looks like. If you screw up, you screw up. Yeah. Cause you're not training anything. We're not trying to turn your dog into the best trick performer in the world. We're just trying to teach your dog that a new ob- novel object in the, in the house pays that interacting with, with a novel object pays. So I do, I do use it. And I do think it's incredibly empowering. I think it's sometimes the long road to Rome. Um, I mean, I wouldn't sitting. Yeah. You can easily, I mean, it, free shaping a sit. That's a natural behavior. Dog is going to offer it. They're going to put their ass on the ground, stare at you. And, and that's, that's perfect. But I, I think there's, I think there could be a negative to, and this is going kind of a field, a far field from where I thought we were going, but who cares? We'll just follow where we're going. I think this is my personal opinion. I think dog, a lot of dogs or, or some dogs really suffer from an overabundance of shaping, free shaping versus luring. So, and I get, we're getting down in the weeds. So I'm going to kind of back up a little bit. So free shaping, for those of you who do not know, is rather hard to explain, but the best way to describe it is a game of red light, green light, where red light isn't marked. So you don't say red light. So imagine I'm trying to ask you to do behavior and I'm only going to, you start throwing behaviors at me and I say green light. And then you hear nothing until you do something else that's close to the behavior I want. And I say green light again, mix, you know, re- rinse and repeat. And, the, and you can, you can shape anything doing this. I mean, you can create amazing behaviors and because the dog is choosing to choose the behavior on their own, I think a very um, reasonable expectation could be is that it teaches the dog autonomy. It teaches the dog that they have control over their environment. It can be incredibly empowering. And the end behavior can be a very powerful behavior because they effectively lit on it by themselves. I always free shape, for example, a pivot bucket for heel work um, where the dog places their front feet on an upturned Rubbermaid type or uh, Fortiflex type uh, dog bowl. Uh, I always free shape that because then once you put that bowl on the ground, the dogs pop onto it right away and, and that behavior is very powerful for them. So what we're talking about are these two different methodologies of, of training. And, and the, the negative as of free shaping is everybody can kind of see from my description is that if you don't have good mechanics with that, you're going to have a very frustrated dog who's either going to offer, if it's a border collie, it's going to, five, it's going to offer 700 behaviors in 30 seconds and bark and spin and possibly bite you all in that period of time. Or if you have a basset hound, it's going to stare at you for 30 seconds, fart and walk away. And so um, it's a, it's a great technique, but I think that it can be, I think if you're not super clear with when it's, when it's something you're looking for versus when it's something you're not looking for, I think it can cause a lot of frustration in dogs, especially these high drive dogs. I, th- I think it could. I mean, I think it depends on how, how you're training it. Um, but I, you know, I would like to say that even with our heel work, so I, I've lured all, uh, all of Bob's heel work. 
Um, I didn't do, I did very, very little free shaping. And I bet you, if we were to compare our heel work side by side, we would see differences that you and I would be able to identify because of the luring versus free shaping. I think it does create subtle changes in, in, in the overall behavior. And I, I would guess that I have to do a lot more prompting in my heel work. And I do think I have beautiful pivots, but my prompt still has to be there. I don't have to have food, but I have to have my prompt. I can have my hand inward now instead of outward, but I still have to have it to move around. And I think that's where... So when you're saying prompt, what do you... Let's describe this for folks. So you're doing heel. So so we're talking about as a heel, nice heel. Okay. Oh, uh, so I mean my hand signal. So I'm prompting, I'm using my hand. So if I use food to lure into a position or to move back around and have my dog maintain that position, I'm using okay. food to lure that at first. Um, and then eventually I'm not using food, but I'm using some kind of prompt. Now that could be my body position. Right. That could be my, it's my hands really, because that's what I started with feeding. Um, but, and I still, I think I have a very solid, I have, uh, you know, nice solid pivots and uh, an okay heel work. Um, but I do think it would look differently if I free shaped that. So we wouldn't, we would, the prompting would be less. And I, I, I'm cutting that step. Now it's not to say that you couldn't have good mechanics with your, you know, but, but I do, I do think there are advantages, not all the time, but there are advantages. Well, and I only, I don't, well, I think I free shape almost all of it, but to be honest, that those beautiful, flashy, gorgeous IPO style heels that I'm so madly in love with that I don't put my, put on my own dogs. I believe those are lured. Those beautiful, flashy, bouncy, springy in the front end, Malinois heels, those are not free-shaped heels. Those are my heel, which is kind of, um, and this is my mechanics and what I'm willing to take. They're kind of messy, and um, but very attentive and lovely little pivots that are, it's tag, so she throws some extra things in there sometimes. <laughs> she's like i think i i know you only turned 180 degrees but i felt i should pivot a uh, 360 degrees is that okay mom and i did it really happy um so, so. and then there's me all the treats what great effort <laughs> i get a big swing in I'm a little enthusiastic. I go through all the cheese at work. It's a it's a major issue. I think it's unreasonable to expect beginner dog trainers to to do free shaping and to achieve anything. So again, I I'll introduce it. I introduce it the very generally the very first session of all of my behavior cases that involve any sort of of reactivity or fear. I will introduce free shaping. But I'm not introducing it as something to, there's no end goal. There's no, there, we're not trying to get a behavior. I'm not asking owners, okay, here's, here's this whole new technique. Good luck with it. And I want at the end of the week for your dog to be able to do a backflip. It's, I just want you to work on, put the blender in the middle of the floor and what does the dog do? Or go outside and, and you know, when the dog sees the garbage can that it reacts to, start right there and, you know, start free shaping it, walking towards it or making better choices or, you know, eventually putting its feet on it or, or what have you. And, and for me, it's, it's because it's empowering. It doesn't, it takes the human out of the picture, uh, for a fearful dog. I think that I don't ever want to, 
I somebody somebody said this, and I, I can't remember who it was, and I wish I do did because I thought it was brilliant. They called it the indecent proposal of dog training, where you lure a dog into a situation they don't really want to be in, and. I don't want my dog to follow a treat into a situation that they really don't want to be in, but because they love the treat so much, they'll do it. So free shaping to me creates that, that power, especially if you're always using the reward to create more distance from whatever you're free shaping towards. So if I'm free shaping my, let's say I put a blender on the middle of the floor and the dog's like, holy shit, there's a blender on the floor. We're all going to die. Bark, 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 bark. Then I start free shaping with, will you just, look at the blender then i'm like yes and i throw the treat past the dog further away so the dog can then make that choice do they just want to take the treat and get the hell out of dodge fine <laughs> i'll pick up the blender and everything is good if they decide to turn back towards the blender then then i mark yes and i throw the treat further away it's, i'm never going to ask that i'm not going to use lure because that would be luring um, if you threw the treat towards the blender now, having said that, if I have a dog who's pretty bold and I'm just training something, sure, I'll use the I'll use the placement of the rewards to pull the dog closer and closer in. Um, I'll bounce if I'm using when I'm doing with pivot plates. I'll certainly have no problem bouncing the toy, the treat off the actual bowl, partly to make a dinging sound so the dog sees it. Half the time, the dogs don't see him. But the other thing is just that's where the food's coming from. Pay attention to that location. So. Um, but that's, you know, that's kind of how I use it, but I don't, I don't train any beginning behaviors with it. I mean, I, nothing, I don't, you know, sit down, come when called, none of that's free shaped. And that's tough. That's tough to ask somebody just starting out. No. And I think that already, if you're in the positive reinforcement realm and you are adhering to a positive reinforcement ethos where you are looking to ask owners to do away with a lot of the punishers that are very natural to them, yelling no and, and kind of running after their dog with, you know, yelling at them for jumping on the counter or what have you. I think you're already asking owners to make a pretty giant leap in, in their training techniques and the amount of management and the changes, lifestyle changes they need to make to, to fall into that ethos. And I think to add another layer of complexity to what is already a rather complicated situation, they don't think, I don't think most people signed up for, I think is, is kind of thoroughly unfair. Um, you know, I, I, we can all geek out on free shaping all we want. You know, I don't care if you train your dog to climb a ladder using free shaping, that's cool. Good for you. But uh, I don't think it's of much value for a beginner, a beginner person who's just trying to keep their dog off the counter and out of the trash. And you've got enough to work on with your mechanics and timing. And I think that's what really makes a great positive reinforcement training right. is their mechanics. Well, and that's what we have to drill down into because I still don't think we've defined it worth a fuck. So, <laughs> so, so what is, what is that? What is, what is a picture of good mechanics? What makes it valuable and what does it look like? How is a person, if I'm a beginner dog person and I'm like, here's my new puppy, look, I've got my new puppy and look, I lured it to sit and I can give it food. How do I know if I have good mechanics or poor mechanics? How do I know if what I'm teaching is gonna end up becoming good or if I'm gonna jack it all up? I, I think it starts with the learner. So look at your learner. 
how are we going to do best? Do you have a dog that's going to do best with free shaping? Or is it a dog who really does need to be lured? You know, look at, um, is this a dog that uh, can keep working? You can do an exercise after an exercise, or do we need a nice loop? You know, do we have to reset and go back again and really get a nice pattern going in? Or do we have a dog who can just sit and work? Um, and knowing those differences. You know, is there are some dogs who will thrive, but there are others who need nice, clean loops as you're working. Um, there are dogs who just having the food in your hand, you know, that's a distractor for the learner. You know, they're so focused. Maybe we have a history of luring. And so having that food in our hand is a distractor. Maybe it's, um, you know, this is something that I'm so bad at, Leanne, is I, I just, I go on and so I'll be training something, uh, you know, kind of complex. Like, um, right now I'm trying to teach Bob to, uh, get the socks. I think I sent you a video and I'm, I'm putting like socks under clothes and he has to like lift the shirt and find the socks. And, and my goal oh my is that eventually he can sort the laundry. <laughs> So we've got it on the floor and I'm trying to put it on the, the couch and then he'll like sort the socks. My dream is that like, you know, I'll, I'll sit there and I'll have the laundry there and he'll just sort the socks and put them in the basket while I'll fold the laundry. He doesn't need to be prompted. He doesn't have to be helped. He can lift the shirts and he can put them back to where the pile is. Not that I'll have clothes all over the living room. That That's the end. Um, behavior that, that I'm, I'm looking for. Um, and I forgot, I, oh, 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 but mechan you know, just, just having the food in my hand instead of in my treat pouch will disturb this behavior. And it's not a solid. So even little things like that, depending on your learner, make such a big difference. Well, I think a perfect example of that uh, for those of you who aren't trying to get your dogs to sort their laundry <laughs> And it was an awesome video, by the way. It was fantastic. Uh, would be the um, situation of a happy golden. I always use happy goldens because we know what they look We can all envision the happy golden where you're trying to train like just something simple, a sit. But you have the food in your hand <laughs> and your dog is a blithering, psycho, happy idiot. And the whole time you're trying to get a sit out of this dog, he's slobbering all over you and mouthing your hand and bouncing around and ricocheting around and you take that same dog and maybe you put the food up it's a golden up on the refrigerator <laughs> and ask for the sit without food in your hand and then mark it yes and then go to the refrigerator and get the food maybe something as simple as that will de-escalate that that silliness enough that you can function or that he can function because he is a golden that that can that can be helpful i just finished up a class we did a herding ball class so it's kind of tri ball only i made it up because i didn't want to deal with rules so we were using a soccer ball and this is a class you taught it was a fun class so one was this awesome little corgi his name's benny and he was just a little shit he's perfect he's exactly what a corgi should be he's a year old he's all about himself he's a little cocky shit he's just exactly what a corgi should be and he his mom was like well he does great with us in the house but the second i add treats he's just all about the treats and he would he'd smash into the ball to go running to her for the treats and so in in that case finding a way to get the treats out of her hands so that he could focus on the ball 
and then rewarding after he hit the ball instead of having them in her hands where he just couldn't think. It was a little tiny choice that we made that 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 helped that out, um, that helped kind of bridge that gap so that he could he could focus on one thing because he couldn't focus on two things at once because young male corgi he could only focus on one thing at a time and for him to have sorry about the growling <laughs> there's, there's dog wrestling there's dog wrestling at my feet <laughs> oh my god so anyway um, this puppy has been so much fun uh, she's a little airedale she's adorable so anyway he just he can't focus on two things so if she takes the food out of the picture then he can move the ball and then we can mark the behavior and then we can get the food and give it to him and just by doing that we were able to well i took a video and he did a six second run for our fake herding ball olympics that we're going to challenge another local trainer to she just needs to get her people trained up so oh are you going to do colors no that's the coolest thing I think about. Try. I, I just think that's fascinating to cue them to do the different colors and then to have them. I don't think we could get that achieved in a five week class. That's probably a 12 yeah. week class. So this is a five week class. So we, uh -huh. we set the ball up in the corner. The dog has to get it out of the corner and then they have to bring it to Ooh. a, yeah. Ooh. I mean, it's not, it's not super easy. And then they have to bring it to the goal and they have to push it all the way into the goal all the way to the base of the goal. So the goal is shaped like a giant V. I mean, I'm not making it impossible for these dogs. Their, their steering is somewhat suspect. So they bring it to the goal. And so he had a six second run yesterday. So he threw down the gauntlet. And that was after weeks of him just being a goofus in the room and just running in circles and trying to pee on things because he's a boy. <laughs> it was all about the ball. Well, that's a tough one. I mean, think about your mechanics. Think about getting it out of the corner. And, you know, and, and yes. what that takes. Yeah. No, we had to, we had to really work on the getting out of the corner part. And, but it was funny because he wouldn't, he wouldn't play with the balls that I had in the room. He only, he liked his ball and his mom didn't bring his ball every time. So when his mom didn't bring the ball, he couldn't function. He just, <laughs> he just run through the other ball to get to the treats <laughs> that she had on her body. It was like a, it was like a chair. Oh. So, so yeah. So the, in that situation, there's more growling. Um, in that situation, ha just changing that small thing um, makes a difference. The, the other thing that I think about with mechanics is stay. I think stay can be really something that you really have to <laughs> worry about. Can you hear that? It sounds so loud here. Yeah. <laughs> it's because they're right at my feet. <laughs> They've got a toy and they're playing tug of war with it. Sorry. <laughs> so stay is an interesting one um, in the sense of where do you add your cue, Leanne? Because we haven't talked about adding cues in, and that's just as part of mechanics. So when do I add the word stay to the word to the act of staying? Mm -hmm. Actually, mm -hmm. I'm somewhat yep. on the fence with this, and I kind of doodle around with it. So I actually start staying, I actually start teaching a level of self-control at the sit. So I actually do something I stole from the School of Canine Science. Great trainers, fantastic trainers out of Spain and, and Great Britain. And they, they do a puppy class that I, um, that I really enjoy. And it was for dog trainers to teach puppies. So I, I took their, their workshop on that. And they, it's kind of a great little, a great little practice tool and it's called Space Invaders. And, and once I describe it, you'll be like, oh, duh. So what we do is after we've got the sit, 
this is the first step in proofing the sit is you start with a treat shoulder height with a puppy sitting the dog sitting and you zigzag it down like the space invaders from the old 80s game and as you're zigzagging down if the dog breaks the sit you pull the treat up and rinse and repeat until the dog can succeed and and obviously we played we you know we had we make amendments for certain dogs you know maybe get halfway down and then and you won't add your cue in that's You're just, just adding this the, is just a the sit. this is just a sit so i start mm-hmm. training a sit where they can understand the concept of holding that behavior until a release word is given or tell or at least not a release word but at least until the marker cue is given so yes and you know that's when they receive it or if there's no marker cue at least until they receive the food so I start there. And then when I do stay, I actually introduce the word right away because I'm setting it up where it's error-free learning. Um, so I'll say sit, I'll say stay, and I'll immediately say break and throw the food. So that's how I, I train a sit. So it's all so fast that the dog is, because I always tell people, I think stay is really hard for dogs to understand because the absence of movement. I think it's, I think it doesn't make a lot of sense to dogs. So at the beginning, I just throw the word to the behavior they're already doing, which is sitting, staring at me. And then the release cue. And I think where the mechanics for what I struggle from with my with my students especially is the mechanics, not of the stay so much, of the release. Because I use, so I, I do a little bit of both, but at first what I'm really trying to do is I'm really trying to build value into the release cue itself. That's the word I want the dog listening for. I don't care about stay. For me, the word that's really relevant for the dog is the release. So break, in my case, I always use break. So what I want the dog focused on is the word break. I want them to sit, which they already know that behavior, and they've already been slightly dealt with distractions in that behavior. So they kind of have a concept that you stay in this behavior until mom says, you know, either the food is delivered or she gives the, the reward marker. Because um, I don't always reward mark. I don't always mark sits. I sometimes just feed them. So they kind of have a concept of that. So they've already got kind of a quasi built-in stay. But what I really need is that a real strong understanding of what the release cue is. So what I'll do then is I'll say break, which is my release cue, and then I'll throw the treat. And for me, I'm always really struggling to tell my, my students, look, you have to say the word and then pretty much count to one before you move your hand. Because if you throw that treat as you're saying stay, or as you're saying break, your release cue is actually the hand movement. And what that means is that when we go on to more advanced levels and we start standing apart from our dogs and doing YMCA and the Macarena and all that, your dog's gonna break when you start waving your hands around like an idiot, because they think that's the, that's the break cue, because they're gonna obviously choose body language over verbal. So, and that's where I think the mechanics really, really come into play is when the release cue is given to ensure that release cue followed by beat by, you know, break, pause, thrown treat. So that there's a clear distinction. So the dog's hearing the word and that anticipates the thrown treat. Will you reward them in the stay and the release? So you'll, you'll treat both. I'll do both. I'll do both. Right at the beginning, I'll start with that. That's where I start because the dog has a, generally at that point, they have a two or three second stay that's kind of already built in because of the way I trot the sit. Once I start building a stay that's going into, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40 seconds a minute, I will then, and where I'm starting to move away from them, 
I will say, stay, step back, step into the dog, give him a treat, repeat the command. Cause I think once you've given the, the treat, I consider that to be a termination marker. So then I re-repeat the stay command back up again, rinse and repeat. So they'll get it both ways. So they understand that. So duration, I always tell people, I don't want duration to be paid less than short. You know, I always tell people if, if the dog sits for one second and gets one treat, but they say for 30 seconds, it gets one treat. That doesn't seem very fair to me. So, so I like the idea of a 30 second stay, having maybe five treats in there from you walking in, walking back, walking in, walking back. Does it make sense? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I'll do the same. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what I won't do? I don't treat the release at first. So that's where I differ. I'll reward it, Mm -hmm. you know verbally or otherwise, but then I will go back into my stay and build a really strong, quick release into it later. Yeah. I'll build value into the stay first. That's typically how I'll do it. Huh? Yeah. No, I really want value in the release. So, um, yeah. Well, that's the fun part. That's the flashy part for sure. And for me, because I'm doing herding, um, I don't, I don't need them because I don't even say stay when I, when I lie them down in herding, I, I just say lie down. And the expectation is that lie down is is there until the next cue is given, and so I need them. I, all I don't they heard lie down. Their job is to stay there. All they need to be doing now is focusing on the next word. That's what has to happen. So I want them really keen to hear that next word because that next word is going to be motion of some kind, right? And it's going to be towards the reward in this case, sheep. So I, I want them really focused on that word because until they hear that word. I want them staying where they're at. And I, I, I've, I've trained it both ways and I don't, I don't really think, I mean, unless somebody sits around with, with a, you know, thousand dogs and trains half one way and half the other way, I haven't seen any significant difference in the, in the quality of the stay, um, in, in the two different techniques or, or the technique of never calling a dog out of a stay. You know, there are folks who never call the dog out of a stay. And, uh, I don't, I don't think there's, I haven't seen any, any serious difference in the end, the end performance or the end behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in the, the beginning, you know, in the, the middle stages you might. Yeah. And mine are always but sloppy. The end behavior. Yeah. My middle stages are going to be sloppy anyway, because I'm going to screw up. I mean, I'm going to raise criteria too fast or I'm going to have to, you know, I'll have to fix shit because I'll just, I'll move along too fast. I'll be like, Oh, you can stay for one half, one and a half seconds in the, uh, in the dog spot, you know, at the, in the location in town, I'm sure you can do a half minute stay while I'm moving sheep. (laughs) Yeah. The dogs are like, uh, no, no, we cannot. (laughs) So, but that's me. That's not the training method. That's just me being a sloppy trainer. So which happens (laughs) way too often. It's, it's like me. I'll start with the okay. You could do this for ten seconds now. Can you do this while I dance and sing and jump in the air? Oh, you can't! Oh, I'm shocked! Well, I'm stunned. What? <laughs> I think proofing is um, it. It's something that I think some trainers are very, very skilled at. I put a post up on my Facebook page probably about a month ago. I was in New Mexico with a, a friend of mine who's a dog trainer and she trains bird dogs. She trains, she breeds vishlas and trains hunting bird dogs. And I just find that fascinating as hell. And so she asked me if I wanted to come watch her train her dogs. I'm like, yeah, 
<laughs> let's talk dogs for the next five hours. So I, I went over and she was showing me with three different dogs and pigeons. And she showed me how to rock a pigeon to sleep. And it was cool as hell. So anyway, so we hide the pigeon in the brush and she shows me how to do that. And she, then she sends the dogs out looking for it. And part of the job of these bird dogs. So these are pointing upland game bird dogs or whatever. You know, they're not Labradors. They're, they're like German shorthair pointers. So they, they're pointing dogs. They, they freeze. And then, so what you do then is, so that's, they're telling you there's a bird in the bush. Cause I had to explain this. I have no clue. I have, I'm completely ignorant. I was just like, oh, the bird stops and then you stand behind it. And, and I was thinking as we we're doing this, look, well, wait a minute. <laughs> The bird's not, it's not a peacock. <laughs> you're going to, I can get the bird out. So then the, the trainer has to walk into the bush really and start kicking it, you know, thinking quail, you know, or pheasant or something in the, in the bush. They had to kick it. So the bird flushes and then you shoot the bird as it flushes. Well, obviously once your dog is on point on staying, staying with the bird, you can't have them break when that bird takes off or you'll shoot your dog. So that's a big deal. So proofing that is a big deal. So she had three young dogs and I think the second dog that she brought out, she, she had it, it was on point and she went into the bushes and she was using, okay, everybody who's from PETA, just close your ears. Really, you shouldn't have been listening anyway. She throws a frozen dead pigeon into the air. That's, that's the retrieve part. And the dog broke. The dog went running for the frozen dead pigeon. And so she kind of ran at it and said, you know, said the command, the command is, whoa, that's their standstill command. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And the dog didn't. And so, but I loved, you know, the way she trained, it's so beautiful. There wasn't, you're a bad dog. There was none of that. It was none of the bad dog. There wasn't a punish, no thought of punishment. This was, oh, here's a training opportunity. You obviously don't know this as well as I thought. So she gently brought the dog back by the leash to where it was standing before. She asked it to woe again. She went back into the bushes, kicked them around. She grabbed the pigeon, chucked it in the air. She went back to the dog and petted it because you don't want the dog to break if you touch it either, I guess. You know, just in case you're, you're maneuvering with your gun to shoot the bird and you maybe brush up against your dog. You don't want your dog taking off. And the dog stood for all of this. And she just proofed the shit out of it and then released the dog. It went and got his bird and was a happy dog. And it probably took two minutes, but it was a beautiful, it was a very, to me, it was very beautiful, very systematic, uh, very matter of fact, no blame, which I think is really important when proofing. A lot of people really get, um, they get ahead of their dog and then they blame their dog for not showing up where they're at. And, and she was just matter of fact, she's like, oh, we don't know this. So we'll go back, we'll fix it. We'll proof it. It was, it was actually really beautiful training. It was, it was, I was so happy I got on video because it was certainly much prettier than anything I would do when I'm proofing. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, you just need frozen dead pigeons. <laughs> I could, I mean, just imagine what you could proof with a frozen dead I pigeon. I couldn't proof anything. I, all I would do is have feathers everywhere because my dogs aren't bird dogs. <laughs> yeah. My dogs aren't bird dogs. I know oh. exactly what would happen to a dead pigeon. <laughs> there would be feathers there'd be feathers and that would that would be it yeah no the and it's kind of cool because honestly these birds these dogs would take that so the the 
the prize for them, the reward is getting to carry this pigeon around. You know, they were all at that stage in their training where they really didn't have, they did have, they'd bring it back, but they wouldn't drop it yet. They weren't quite there. She'd worked on the fetch, um, with other lower value objects and they had a great fetch with other value objects, but this pigeon obviously is very high value. So they would carry this pigeon all the way back to the truck. And then she would, she'd pour the water into their bucket and they were just dying. They were like, oh, I want a drink, but I've got my prize. I've got, and she was, she didn't put her hands anywhere near the pigeon. The dog would show me the pigeon. It's like, look what I have. And it's smiling around the pigeon, but it didn't do, because I kept waiting for it to do what my dogs would do. It would be like, shove the pigeon underneath a foot and start ripping <laughs> feathers off. It, these dogs, I mean, I, the genetics are just, you don't shred p- pigeons. My, my dogs would have had those feathers off and I'd be hearing horrifying crunching noises. I'd be scarred for life. Oh. <laughs> but then they would, they would eventually oh. just drop the pigeon to get their drink and then she'd put it back in the freezer because that's where you store your dead f- pigeons is in the cooler. <laughs> so here's a, here's a rule, everybody. <laughs> training cooler. If you uh, know anybody <laughs> who trains bird dogs and they offer you something out of a cooler, I don't think I'd take it. Just... <laughs> <laughs> or make sure they have another cooler that maybe is labeled dead pigeons so that you don't drink the beer that's been soaking in dead pigeon water. Hold on, I have to get some dogs. Sorry about that. They were getting carried away. <laughs> Matilda can become a little bit much, so... Anyway, but yeah, it was beautiful. It was a be- it was a beautiful illustration in in proofing. I thought. I mean, very systematic. Because uh-huh. um, I think a lot of proofing. Uh-huh. Oh, well, and I speak for myself. Um, a lot of my proofing, at least, is very messy. There's no system to it. It's it's uh, it's haphazard. It's ad hoc. There's just not a lot of. It's not systematic. It's not pretty. Yeah. So. No, this, you know, that's something I'm trying to improve on. I was reading a proofing protocol from, I believe, Stephen Lindsay. And it, it's just, you know, it was basically like a whole procedure for stand, for proofing your stand stay. And it reminded me of like a Dr. Seuss book. It's like, can you do it while you sit? Can you do it? <laughs> it's like everything you could think of, you know, running around the dog, jumping up and down, crawling on the floor, rolling on the floor, sitting and standing. You know, I, I, you know, I just kind of run around like a maniac, Leanne. That's what I've always done. And my dogs are really good if I run around like a maniac, but I try to sit and they break. You know, it's it's thinking of all those, which I guess is mechanics too. Um, but but you know, preparing for for any situation. And so I'm trying to get better at that because there are things that I don't prove for that I could potentially use. <laughs> yeah. That could make our training make life a little easier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if I need to crawl around on the floor yeah. or have a dead have pigeon. To, in case you have to move a dead pigeon. And, and, and have the dogs. Yeah, yeah. Retrieve it and not shred it into small pigeon bits. So, um, yeah. 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 So proofing is, I do. And I, I don't know if it's mechanics so much as just good training. Um, I always think of mechanics as being the actual physical part of training. You know, where's my hand and 
where is my body? And yeah. now my livestock guardian dog has found a monster. So now she's barking in the background. This has been a very noisy podcast, <laughs> but I'm outside. So we're not listening to the puppy because if we were inside, the puppy would be screaming in the crate. So because uh, she'd been locked up far too long already. It would be unfair to say I'm home. I'm inside. You're a 12 week old puppy. Why don't you stay in the crate a little longer? That would be unfair. So, <laughs> <laughs> so better to be outside with the chaos that ensues in my life for outside stuff. So, so any um, parting ideas or parting? I mean, how do people how do people look at their mechanics? Well, how do they improve their mechanics? Where would they look to to help themselves with well, it? Well, I think. I think we could look at maybe even some of the common mistakes that we see some of our clients make or some of the ones that I do. I can tell you one that I do, and it's awful, Leanne. I'm ashamed of it. Oh, oh I'm I've, guilty I've of it. I can't uh, even imagine because you know, you're just like, it's yeah. so, so no, Maggie's like freaking perfect. She's like, oh, I'm ashamed of this. And I'm thinking, no, it's not this true. is probably something I do every day and no. I have no shame. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, I have shame for it. It's embarrassing, you know, because I've got these guys doing KPA, so they're always calling me out on it. I will. Oh God, it's it's so. (laughs) Do you need a beer? I water down my cues. (laughs) So I water down my cues. So I will. I will have a conversation after the dog performs the cue about the cue while using the cue itself. So what a good sit! What an excellent! What a great. This is it you've done. Oh, oh yeah. yes. Oh, yes. I'm watering that with no connection. Oh, it's so bad. At least I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I remember. At least I know. Yeah, I, I, have, I remember seeing you do that. You did. I remember when we were, yeah. Oh, yeah. Loyal listeners, it's a big mistake. Don't do it. It, it. it it waters your cue down. It's going to make it less effective. You're taking away the meaning from it when you do this. It's a very novice habit and it's a bad one well the other one and that's that's something that yeah, i and there's another one that's bad and that's repeating a cue uh so yep. so yep. that i'm i'm actually it's only after they've done the cue leanne there's only no connection <laughs> there's no relevance i just throw it out yeah, there she's just she's just telling them about the cue after the fact but a lot of people and i'll see this yeah where the dog will people won't give their dog room to to figure it out so so and i'm talking about a dog who's who's at the beginning stages, understand the cue, either in conjunction with a, with a hand signal or in the absence of one. And it's, it's the beginning stages where you're just saying, I'm going to, at this point you are, I'm teaching you that sit means sit. And, and I'm fading the lure or I've gotten the treat out of my hand or what, where I'm, I'm at that stage. And what you'll see is people will say, sit, sit. And they'll do it like back to back. And I can say that because all my dogs have run off into the desert chasing whatever monster Billy found. So <laughs> there's no one here to listen to me. Uh, so give your dogs the mental space to kind of noodle it through. You can tell if they're thinking about it. And if they're thinking about it, give them that little bit of space, the one or two beats to suss it out. And a lot of them will offer the behavior if you just give them those seconds. But what we try to do is we're like, well, when we, when we lure it, it takes half a second. I can lure it, sit, and they'll do it. But now I've asked for it and half a second's passed and oh my God, he hasn't done it. I have to say it again. Ah. And it's like, no, no, breathe, 
give the dog a chance because you've changed something. The, something's changed. You've removed the verbal or you've removed the hand signal or you've removed the lure, whatever you've done. And so the dog has to have that, that kind of mental space to suss it out. The other thing is, is if you do have to repeat it, walk the dog forward a couple steps so that you are now out of that context and you're not simply ref, ref, repeating a cue. You have moved everything a couple steps. Now you can ask again. Or toss a treat. Right. Just reset, reset completely. Yeah. Do, do yeah. a reset. And, and if you do, some more tips with that, you know, if you wait, you know, and, and I think I've honestly made some of the best training gains from moving away from errorless learning, you know, allowing the dogs to make mistakes on occasion, but allowing them to suss it through, like you said, to make mistakes will make for a more solid behavior. But I think that when you're waiting it out and you get this, this, this low latency, you know, it takes forever. It's five seconds between cueing the, the behavior and getting it. it. You'll likely, if you cue it again, if you have to reset after that slow, you know, it took three seconds after you're seeing that one single cue, cue it again and see if you can get it faster. And if you can get it faster, jackpot it. Leave on a high note because you really do want to reward, um, you know, those quick behaviors. You really do. You want it to be as instantaneous as possible. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you want um, – I yeah. do. I really want snappy, fast behaviors. Um, that's that's important to me. So yeah. Billy has found a monster, so mm -hmm. there's more barking going on in the background. Um, <laughs> so might might be the time to – since we're obviously being invaded by who knows what – uh, wrap it up. Um, so <laughs> before whatever it is comes out of the desert and eats us all. Uh, so I want to thank you. Uh, it's been months and months and Maggie's been crazy. I know. And busy. I know. Um, we've been. I'm out of practice. Sorry. Oh, listeners. Yeah. So, but she has a new microphone, so hopefully it sounds better. We'll see. Well, oh, it would have sounded better yeah. if I didn't have dog wrestling going on in my feet. And the dog growling going on at my feet, and then Billy off in the desert chasing monsters, and oh, that was a dog <laughs> podcast. It wouldn't be the same without it. Oh my gosh! So anyway, thank you very, very, very much. I appreciate it. Uh, for our listener, if you like this podcast, please rate, review, share, subscribe. I got them all. <laughs> Until next time, happy training. Thank you all.